Let me invite you to turn with me now to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy and to the first chapter and the first verse. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If the Lord is willing, my hope is to spend the next few weeks or months working our way through this entire book of 1 Timothy. And we will begin today in chapter 1, reading the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I pray that this message would bring to your people, this passage would bring to your people grace and mercy and peace and conviction and hope and joy and direction, all by your Holy Spirit and to the glory of your Son. I ask in his name. Amen. In olden times, long before the invention of the telephone or the text message or the email or the Facebook, human beings were engaged in an ancient form of social media called letter writing. Letter writing. Some of you may have actually heard of it somewhere along the line. Letter writing was when a man or a woman, a girl or a boy, took out a pen and a blank sheet of paper and spent 15 minutes or more writing out a handwritten message to another human being. I know it sounds crazy, something like having to get up out of your chair and walk over to the television in order to change the channel, but people used to actually do both of these things. And so it's possible, I suppose, that some of you may have even come across, tucked away in a shoebox somewhere, one of these old pieces of paper yellowed around the edges on which people used to write these personal messages one to another. It may be that a few of you even, like a gust of antique air from a bygone age, it may be that a few of you have actually received a handwritten letter every now and again from someone you know. And all kidding aside, if you do actually open your mailbox now and again and find a handwritten letter stuffed inside, I hope you realize just what a treasure you hold in your hands. Because this old style of communication was actually much more personal than nearly anything that passes along the wires of social media today. Because a letter often came to you written in someone's very own handwriting and having been folded in thirds by his or her very own fingers, maybe even stained with a drop of his own very coffee. And of course... Because this message was not put before a hundred other Facebook friends and because it was much longer than 140 characters and because the author was spending all that time writing it out by hand and might not be able to do so again for another week or two or month, well, very often the message on the page might be much more personal, much more intimate as well, which is why I delete all my text messages and almost all of my emails, but why I have a shoebox in my bedroom closet in which I keep many of the handwritten letters that arrive at my house. Letter writing is a lost art, one that we would do well to recover. And when you hold such a piece of communication in your hand, you possess something quite 
valuable. And I say all of that not mainly because I'm on a crusade to bring back letter writing, although I'll admit it is a small soapbox of mine, but I introduce you this morning to the precious value of a personal letter primarily to get you situated in the context of this book of First Timothy. We call them books of the Bible, but First Timothy is actually a personal letter written 19 and a half centuries ago by the Apostle Paul in verse 1 to his younger protege, Timothy, in verse 2. And what a privilege it must have been for Timothy on that day when this piece of mail first arrived in his box. What a privilege to have held it in his own hands. This personal message from his mentor, from the great apostle to the Gentiles, giving him all sorts of practical ministry counsel and a wee bit of medical advice as well as we'll see in weeks ahead. And what a labor of love it was for Paul to have taken the time to write all this out or perhaps to dictate it to a secretary, because it does seem that Paul may have had trouble with his eyes, trouble seeing well enough to write all these things out himself. But whichever way it was, I did some rough math and figured out that with the size of my own handwriting, it would take me about seven pages of notebook paper to write out the book of 1 Timothy by hand. So just think for a moment or two, how long would it take you to write out a seven-page handwritten letter, especially in those days when the ballpoint pen hadn't yet been invented and when Paul or his secretary would probably have been writing with a quill constantly dipped into a bottle of ink. You can see, I hope, how much effort Paul put into this letter and therefore how valuable it would have been arriving at Timothy's doorstep across all those miles and after many days of not seeing his friend face-to-face. Now, having said all that, I'm quite grateful, actually, that I can snap off a quick, quick text or an email to a friend who needs encouragement or advice and have it ring inside his coat pocket within seconds, even though he may live in another state from me. And I'm thankful that my friends can do the same thing for me. But no text or email that ever arrives or departs from my phone can carry quite the same weight as a personal handwritten letter like this one that Timothy received from the Apostle Paul. We're holding something very precious in our hands as we reread it in the weeks ahead. And then, of course, on a much more important level, I should say to you that not even a handwritten letter composed in the present day, no matter how well-crafted, no matter how personal, no letter that you or I could ever write or receive could be anywhere near as precious as these words from the hand of the Apostle Paul to his disciple Timothy, because these words, this particular letter, were not simply put on paper by a man named Paul, but by the Holy Spirit through him, inspiring every word that Paul wrote. This letter is not only precious because it's a letter, but because it is part of the book of God. And therefore, no matter what the medium, these are incredibly precious words, are they not? Indeed, here is the most important thing that can be said about the value of this letter. There is, of course, an inherent weight in these words when we think about how meaningful they must have been to Timothy coming from Paul's hand in the format of a personal letter between friends and how much Paul... Uh, much time Paul must have spent on it. But the greatest value of these words is that they were written ultimately by God. 
inspired by God. Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And so there's a sense in which a single verse or a single tweet, if you will, from the book of 1 Timothy is worth much more than all the letters I have collected in that shoebox in the top left corner of my bedroom closet. This letter is most valuable, in other words, not simply because of the very personal genre in which it was written, but because it is part of that scripture, which, as Paul would tell Timothy in a later letter, is inspired by God. All scripture is breathed out by God, as the ESV translates the phrase quite literally. Breathed out by God. And so what we have before us this morning is, yes, a personal letter, which alone would have made it valuable to Timothy and of great interest to us all these years later, but it's also a holy letter, an inspired letter, breathed out by God, which makes it infinitely more precious and which makes it applicable and binding even to you and to me, as well as to Timothy. If this were just an ancient letter from an old preacher to his younger brother in the ministry, well, then we might read it with great interest historically, and we might even take some of the advice that Paul gives here and see how we might incorporate it into our own church. But since this letter was given to Paul and to Timothy by the Holy Spirit, that means that we are bound to incorporate its teachings into our lives and into our church. And in fact, we're bound to incorporate all the Bible's teachings into our lives and into our church because they are breathed out by God. And I hope you'll be prepared to do that with me in the days ahead as we study this letter together. Every word of this letter from Paul to Timothy was breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And so I hope you'll be prepared with me to take it seriously for ourselves. And to get us started on that journey, let's just take a look at these two opening verses where Paul makes some introductory remarks and, of course, where he includes some of the same sort of information that you and I would include if we were to write a letter ourselves. So, first of all, from verse 1, let's just think about the author. The author. We've already been saying, of course, that the author of this letter is none other than the Apostle Paul, and we get that, of course, from verse 1. In our own custom, the author of a letter puts his or her name at the end of the letter, but in Paul's day, the author's name came at the beginning. And that's what we find here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. So that's simple enough, isn't it? The author of the letter is the apostle Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But before we rush too quickly past this verse, it's worth asking, what is an apostle? And how does Paul claim that he became one? Why does Paul say he's an apostle? What is that? Well, the English word apostle is brought over almost exactly from the Greek word apostolos, which means most basically messenger. And so when we read of Paul or Peter or John or Matthew as apostles of Christ Jesus, what we're reading is that they were messengers of Christ Jesus. Now, of course, there's a sense in which we all, if we belong to Jesus, there's a sense in which we're all his messengers, right? We all should speak for him in various settings, but Jesus had these select few special messengers, authoritative messengers, who were given the title apostle, 
in an official sense, meaning that they and they alone had been specifically commissioned by Jesus as the official spokesman on his behalf. And so when an apostle spoke, one of these handful of men who had been called to that unique office, when an apostle spoke, their words had the force of thus says the Lord. And quite amazingly, this man Paul, though he had not been among the original twelve and had not even been in the outer circle of Jesus' first followers, in spite of that, this man Paul was called to be one of Jesus' apostles, one of his official spokesmen. And so Timothy was receiving this letter from one of the most authoritative voices in the world. Indeed, the words Paul wrote to him couldn't have been any more inspired if God had spoken them to Timothy audibly. When an apostle spoke, it was, in fact, the word of God. Thus says the Lord. And yet, though Paul's voice and Paul's pen carried so much authority, it was a derived authority. Because remember, the apostle is just a messenger. The apostle is a spokesman which by its very nature means that he is not the authority himself. He is simply saying what the greater authority has given him to say, what the Lord has told him to say. And that is how we should read the first few words of 1 Timothy here, where Paul reminds Timothy that he is indeed an apostle. Paul is not throwing his own weight around here and saying, hey, listen to me, because I am the great apostle. No, he's coming rather and saying, I'm a messenger of the king, an apostle. Of Christ Jesus. He's reminding Timothy that he is speaking on someone else's behalf, namely the Lord's. By announcing his apostleship at the beginning of this letter, Paul is not tooting his own horn. Rather, he is blowing a trumpet that says, I have come to you with a message from the king. Indeed, we might almost think of the word apostle at the beginning of many of Paul's letters as something like the wax seal of a king on an official document. So that when the herald who goes from town to town reading the king's decrees to the people, when he stands up to read the decree, he can say, look at the seal, I have proof that the message is not my own. But it has come down officially from the throne, and I am his spokesman. And that is how this message comes down to Timothy and to us, as a set of edicts from the throne room of heaven. And Paul, merely as the humble but official servant sent to deliver them. And for a look at Paul's humility, notice what he says in verse 1 about how he became an apostle. According to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus. Paul, in other words, hadn't declared himself a spokesman for Jesus. He hadn't elbowed himself into a position of authority through clever, clever alliances or superior giftedness or any other human means of climbing the ladder. No, no. Paul was an apostle because God had met with him in the person of Jesus and because God had commanded him to go and preach. And Paul went, not because he had visions of grandeur for himself, but simply because he was being obedient to the commandment of God in Christ. And there's a lesson in all of this for us, even though none of us will ever be an apostle. The Office of apostle ended when those first official spokesmen of Jesus went to be with him at their deaths. And yet some of us will be called not to be apostles, but to be lesser teachers of God's church or of some portion of it. And we, like Paul, must be sure that we do not run without being sent. 
You must make efforts to be sure that you are leading God's people, if that's what you're doing, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, and not simply out of your own desire. And when we do serve as God's messengers, whether as official teachers in the church or as every one of us tries to speak for Jesus in the workplace and in the neighborhood and to our extended family and in our homes, when we do serve as God's spokespeople, we must, like the apostles, come to them with a message that begins with the words, thus says the Lord. Not because God is directly speaking his message through us like he did through the apostles and the prophets of old, but because the message we proclaim comes directly from their writings. You see what I'm getting at? You and I don't have authority to speak for Jesus the way Paul did, but we do have the same edicts in our hands as he originally presented to the people of the ancient world. And so when we go out proclaiming the words of this book, we too can come to our friends and our neighbors humbly and yet with authority saying, this is what the king says. Thus says the Lord. And so if God has called you to teach people or to mentor your own personal Timothy or to share the gospel in the community, teach them, mentor to them, witness to them from this book. Take the inspired words of Christ's official messengers upon your lips and insert them into your handwritten letters with your own pen and make sure that you, like Paul, and through Paul, share a message that is according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus. So then, those are a few thoughts on this book's author. What about the recipient? The recipient in the second place. To whom was Paul writing? Well, we've already answered that question several times over as well, have we not? And we see it answered clearly in verse 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse 1, to Timothy, verse 2, my true child in the faith. So here I am again stating the obvious. Indeed, the whole reason that this letter is called 1 Timothy is because it was the first letter that Paul wrote wrote to this man after whom the letter is named. Timothy is the recipient. But it's worth noting that as Paul does with himself in verse 1, here in verse 2, he tells us something about the man to whom he is penning these words. Who was Timothy? Well, Paul calls him my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. Paul's not saying here that Timothy was actually his son, either in any biological or in any official adoptive sense. Biologically, Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman called Eunice and a Greek man whose name we do not know. But Paul was, in a sense, Timothy's spiritual father. For though it does not appear that It was under Paul's ministry that Timothy first became a believer. He was taken under the apostles' wings while he was still a young man and evidently trained up by the apostle as they did hands-on missionary work together. You can read about the beginning of this mentorship in Acts chapter 16. Paul came through Timothy's hometown on one of his missionary journeys and he found this young Christian who was well spoken of by his fellow church members and Paul said, Timothy... I think you should be a missionary. I want you to come with me. I want you to be my assistant. 
And Timothy did. And these two men became, as we read here in verse 2 and again down in verse 18, these two men became very close, like a father and his son. And Paul became a spiritual mentor to young Timothy, and Timothy his true child in the faith. And so faithful a disciple did young Timothy prove that when Paul left the great city of Ephesus after a three-year stint as their missionary slash pastor, who did he leave in charge as the new pastor of the church? Well, when we get to verse 3 next week, we will find that he left Timothy in charge. We don't know all that was going on in those intervening years from the time they first met until the time Paul wrote these words and left Timothy behind to shepherd the flock of God in Ephesus. We know that they weren't always together. The book of Acts makes that clear. But they must have been together a lot. And we can probably imagine them sitting together at a table, just studying the scriptures together, maybe with the ancient equivalent of sweet tea or coffee close at hand. And the older man pointing out things to the younger one that he probably hadn't noticed before. And there were probably some early probationary preaching opportunities in which Paul gave Timothy a chance to speak and gave him practical tips before and after he did. And I'd imagine they even got to a place where maybe Timothy sometimes ventured to help the old apostle and to remind him of some truths that he mustn't overlook as well. And so they went on like a father and a son until the last days of Paul's life when he is quite sure that he is finally going to die for his faith. And who does he call for in the next book of the scriptures? To whom does he write in that last hour? Who does he want by his side? Timothy, his true child in the faith. And all of this is incredibly important, not just in terms of historical interest, but because this is how the church perpetuates its existence in the world. This is why in every generation the church has its pastors. Not first of all because of the seminaries, important as they are, but at an even more fundamental level because older men like Paul take younger men like Timothy and pour into them whatever wisdom God has given them and shape them into men who are eventually ready, like Timothy in verse 3, to lead the church into the next generation. And the same thing has to happen with elders And with deacons and with Sunday school teachers and with wives and mothers, Paul says in the book of Titus, and so on. All of us who are more mature in the faith ought to be looking for a Timothy or a Tina whom we can take under our wing and prepare to serve God's people in the next generation. Some of us will be almost full-time mentors to them, fathers and mothers, as it were. Others of us will chip in here and there more like aunts and uncles and grandparents, but we must all be looking for and pouring into our own Timothys and our own Tinas. And if we are the Timothy or we are the Tina, young people, we must be willing to be poured into, humble enough to receive instruction and willing to be prepared as the future leaders of the church. So there you have a few thoughts on both the author and the recipient of this letter and the relationship between the two. But then let me mention to you also the greeting at the end of verse 2. These old letters had greetings sometimes, at least in Paul's case, always a greeting at the beginning of his letter. And what is the greeting here? Well, Paul says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus 
our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, two of those words, grace and peace, Paul wishes upon his readers in every single one of his 13 New Testament letters. He always begins with grace and peace. So we might almost think those are throwaway words. You know, just a formula Paul uses to get the formalities out of the way and get the letter rolling. Like we say, I hope you're doing well, and then we go on and write about whatever it is we have to say. My friend Anthony and I have something like this going over the phone. Every single time he calls, I answer the phone with, what's happening? And he inevitably replies, not much. How are you? And then we go on and talk about whatever it is that he called about. And I'd imagine that many of you speak and maybe write in similar ways to your coworkers or your friends. We all have little formulas that we use, little formalities. And Paul's formula when opening a letter was usually to wish grace and peace upon his readers. And in this case, mercy as well. But I don't think Paul's doing this mindlessly like we might tend to do, just to get the ball rolling before he launches into what he really wants to say. I think that not only because I think that Paul wouldn't have thrown around aimlessly such precious theological words as grace, mercy, and peace, but I also think that because each of these precious words, as I said already, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't waste words. And so, what is Paul saying here with these valuable words, grace, mercy, and peace, that we might be tempted just to bypass? Well, grace and mercy are very similar. Um, If I can borrow from Wayne Grudem to help you see the difference, I'll do that. Uh, Grudem, paraphrasing his definition on grace, says that grace speaks of God's kindness to the undeserving. God's kindness to the undeserving, God's forgiveness, God's friendship, God's adoption of us as his children, all in spite of our sin, and all purchased for us with the precious blood of Jesus. That is what's behind the word grace. It's not a throwaway word. It's one of the most precious concepts in the Bible. I wonder if you know it. I wonder if you know the joy and the freedom that comes in realizing that you're loved by God in spite of yourself. That is what Paul wishes for Timothy here in verse 2. May you know the grace of God, Timothy, his kindness to you in spite of your sin. And then mercy is similar. Grudem, once again, defines mercy like this. God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. Similar, but slightly different than grace. And let me say to you, doesn't sin both original sin and our own sin and the sin of others, doesn't sin cause misery and distress? Sickness, pain, broken relationships, disease, frustration, heartache, grief, and so on. And Paul wishes mercy on Timothy in all these things and on all Christians really. As well, God's kindness to us, God's tenderness and help when life is miserable. Some of you are there this very morning. Life is miserable. And I pray for you right now, mercy from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then peace as well. Peace with God, first of all. Peace with God instead of the enmity that our sins have created. 
can we have such peace if we belong to Jesus? Peace with our fellow man, which is much easier to attain when Christ has put his own love into our hearts. Peace with our circumstances, which comes when we realize that God really is in control and that he does know what he's doing and that he really will work it all out for good if we're his children. Oh, Timothy, Paul says, may the Father and the Son grant you peace. May the Father and the Son grant you peace too. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with your fellow man as you reflect his love. Peace with your circumstances as you entrust them to God in prayer. Philippians chapter 4. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. May they be yours today in the fullest measure. Now then, having thought about the author, the recipient, and the greeting of this letter, let's notice very briefly and in the fourth place the purpose of this letter. The purpose. Why, in other words, is Paul writing these words to Timothy in the first place? Well, he's writing a letter because the two men are in two different places and are separated by the miles. And he's writing to Timothy, of course, because he has special interest in this young man as his true child in the faith, verse 2, his protege in the ministry of the gospel. But there is also a specific reason why Paul writes the specific sort of letter that is going to unfold before us, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. And the reason, as we already alluded to in verse 3, is because Paul has planted this church in the great city of Ephesus, and because he has now left that church to go on to other fields of labor, and he has left it in the hands of Timothy. And he writes this letter to Timothy, as we begin to see in verse 3, in order to give him all sorts of pastoral advice, which is really all sorts of thus says the Lord, about how to lead and how to shepherd and how to organize a local church. The flow of most of this letter makes it clear that this is Paul's primary purpose in writing to his young friend, to instruct Timothy as to God's will for the life of the church. And Paul sums up his reason for writing quite nicely over in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, I don't want to linger very long on this point, but I introduce these two verses from chapter 3 here at the beginning of the study so that you will have an idea of where Paul is going and where we are going in the weeks ahead. I write, Paul says in verse 15, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul has a very high view of the church. The church is the household of God, the family of God, in other words. And God wants his family run well. The church is the pillar, Paul says, which holds up the truth at the end of verse 15 to a watching world. That's what we are. We're the pillar holding up the truth for the world. And Paul wants that pillar to be straight and he wants it to be strong and he wants it to stand tall. And so the church and what we do in the church, Paul is going to tell Timothy, is incredibly important. Important enough for Paul to write an 
quite lengthy personal letter and for us to spend weeks or months combing through it, learning who and what and how we should be as the family of God. So that's the purpose of the letter. And in closing, let me direct you finally to the passion of the letter. This is my favorite part, the passion of the letter. Why does Paul write this letter in the first place? Well, we just said because he wants Timothy to know how to lead and shepherd and organize the local church. But why is that so important to Paul? Why does he care about the organization and the leadership of the church? Is Paul just a type A personality who can breathe much easier if he knows that everything is running smoothly and all the ducks are in a row and there's good structure in place and the guy who's supposed to do the announcements and the guy who's supposed to do the prayer and the guy who's supposed to do the scripture reading all know what they're supposed to do? Is that what Paul's really all about? He just wants the church to be run in a certain way because it makes him feel a little more comfortable. Simply for the sake of order. Or is there a pragmatic concern in Paul that a well run church will be more appealing to the community and more effective at getting things done. Well, there are practical benefits to any organization being well run, right? But is that Paul's chief concern regarding the church? Is Paul passionate about order and efficiency and well-oiled machines? I don't think that is the impetus behind this letter. And the reason is because some of the things I keep hearing Paul repeat in chapter 3, verse 15, which we just read, and in the first two verses of the letter. Did you hear the repetition in chapter 3, verse 15? In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Did you hear it? Paul is passionate about the church. He says it two times in a row because Paul is passionate about God to whom the church belongs. Paul doesn't love the church and he doesn't write this letter because he has a fire in his belly about good organization. Nor does Paul care about the church primarily for social reasons, the way we might be prone to do. Paul loves the church. Paul cares about the church. Paul is passionate about the church because the church belongs to God, to the living God. The church is his household, his family. And in the same way that the behavior of a man's family says something to the world, whether true or false, about that man, so the family of God and the order we maintain and the discipline we enforce and the love we show says something, whether true or false, about our Heavenly Father. And that's what Paul is passionate about, God. And we hear it in verses 1 and 2 as well, don't we? Paul is clear to state that it wasn't he that made himself an apostle, it was God, verse 1. And he doesn't just wish Timothy grace, mercy, and peace in general, but grace, mercy, and peace from God. So do you hear it? Paul's an apostle because of God. Paul blesses Timothy in the name of God. Paul cares about the church because the church belongs to God. And though that may sound like the most obvious thing in the world to say that we would come to church this morning and talk about God, I say to you, beware that it's really He for whom you come. When you are in need of grace, mercy, and peace, do you turn to self-help? 
or to Google or to food or to God? Are you sure that you do your job in the church because you're convinced like Paul that God has placed you in that role? Or do you just like having a job to do? When you think about why you love this church and why you come on a Sunday and why you wish to see your church change and grow in certain ways or what you would change if you could, do your answers have to do with God or simply with your personal tastes and likes and dislikes and with the fact that you have a lot of friends here and so it's nice to come? Brothers and sisters, let us not be content to be merely a social gathering of friends, but truly strive to be the church of the living God. This is what Paul was passionate about in this letter and in his life. And when we say that Paul is passionate about God, that includes his obvious passion in this letter and elsewhere for the person of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Do you hear that name repeated fully three times in these first two verses? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Three times in two verses. Here is the name to borrow from John Newton that is sweet in Paul's ear. Here is the name that Paul cannot keep from his lips and from flowing out of the end of his pen. Paul is not afraid, like many a modern churchgoer, to speak specifically of and in that name. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is his king, whose message he has been sent to herald. And Christ Jesus, he said, is our hope. When Paul thinks of what will become of him and what will become of Timothy and what will become of the church in Ephesus that he has left behind and what will become of the church in the world and what will become of the world. When Paul thinks about what hope we have for the future, his answer is not to talk about his retirement account, to pontificate about unrest in the Middle East, to discuss the next presidential candidates or to wonder whether Social Security will still exist when he retires. I don't say that Paul wouldn't have cared about those things, nor that we shouldn't care about them either. But I do say that when Paul thought about the future, when Paul considered his hope and where it really lay, he thought about Christ Jesus, verse 1, who is our hope. And when he pronounces the blessings of grace, mercy, and peace upon his young disciple Timothy, he is quick to recognize that those things don't exist in a vacuum. But come to us, verse 2, from Christ Jesus our Lord. And I wonder if you think this way. And I wonder if you talk this way. Are you a Jesus person? This is my great prayer for some of you. That you will not simply pray to God, quote, in your name, but that the man Christ Jesus would be so real to you that you will not hesitate to specifically pray in Jesus' name. It is my prayer for some of you that when you think about your death, you will not simply say, well, I'm ready to go. But something like, Jesus has washed away my sins. And Jesus has made me his own. And with Jesus, I will make it across that final river. Paul does not, of course, keep up the same 
pace of using Jesus' name all throughout the letters. He, the, the letter he doesn't use the name of Jesus three times in every two verses. But I tell you that if you just read his writings, you won't find another theme to which he gives more energy and more enthusiasm than that of Jesus Himself. Paul has as much to say as any other biblical writer about election and predestination. But the foundation is that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, in Jesus. Paul is the apostle, the great apostle of grace. But grace comes to us, Paul says here in verse 2, from Christ Jesus. Paul was the great missionary, the greatest missionary who ever lived. But what is missions except telling people about Jesus? And Paul, while giving us the clearest instructions that we could ever want about marriage, tells us in Ephesians 5.32 that marriage is really all about Jesus and his church. And oh, that we would have the heartbeat of the apostle, that we would have his passion, that we would be Jesus people above all else. Not just good people, but Christ-like people. Not just churchgoers, but lovers of Jesus. Not just longing to see our families in heaven, but even more so, eager to see Jesus. Not just a group of friends who gathers on Sunday, but truly the body of Christ, and thus the church of the living God.